Deepish Thoughts with Kim and Karen. Are suddenly recording this? Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Can we start recording? Okay, oh, good. so we've been oh, recording. Perfect. Okay, Great. perfect. Great. Love you. Yes, thank you. She... I, Hey, this is Kim Shepard, and it'll probably come as no surprise that a lot of times Carolyn and I wind up talking about these episodes for hours, if not days after we actually record them. And some of our most interesting conversations don't actually make it into the episodes. So for this Deepish Thoughts, we wanted to share a little bit more of our conversation with Cece Moore, the genetic genealogist who helped solve the cold case of the murder of Susan Galvin more than 50 years after the crime took place. If you've already had a chance to listen to our episode, Solved by Science, the murder of Susan Galvin, you'll know that Cece started her career researching her own family tree. And it wasn't until years later that she actually started working with law enforcement. Now, I never could have imagined it would lead me here where I am now. But I will say that pretty quickly on, I realized that there were applications to any type of human identification and that we were starting to see some overlaps with law enforcement. I started working cases where people had been abandoned as babies and those birth parents were unknown. There was always an open case somewhere at a police department on those and they had almost never been able to identify those birth parents. And we were able to do that through genetic genealogy. And then I worked with an amnesiac named Benjamin Kyle. Law enforcement had tried everything to identify him and not been able to. And that we were sounds to really that. fascinating because you actually have the person there that you can tell. You're not just looking at, right. you know, genes on a paper. Yeah. And that is how the it all started was it had to be someone that could spit in that tube and mail in and get it into that database. And so that was the challenge. The transition that was difficult is how do you get crime scene DNA into genetic genealogy databases. So initially we're working with living people, foundlings, abandoned babies who survived, amnesiacs, people who have significant family mysteries, people uh, who found out they were conceived through rape and they wanna identify their father, their biological father, but that's also their mother's rapist. So- Wow, what's that Yeah, yeah, really. (laughs) What's that You know, it, it happens more than you know, we would like, right? I mean, of course, people do conceive through rape sometimes. And it's a difficult thing for the person who's the subject of that conception. Um, But people usually want to know, like they want the knowledge, regardless of how it happened, they want to know their heritage. And maybe that father, that biological father is a bad person, but that doesn't mean that their entire paternal family tree is. And so, you know, a lot of people have expressed interest in resolving that. I've also dealt with um, incest cases or closely related parent conceptions for many years. I think I've seen more of those than probably anyone in the world um, because we've seen so many revealed through direct consumer testing. And so it's very common for me to help identify who the biological parents are in that in those types of cases. So it was clear there was overlap with law enforcement But again, these are people that could spit in that tube, living people. So how do you get a crime scene DNA or from a deceased doe, a deceased individual who's unknown into the databases? And that's really what took so long for us to get to this point. Um, And, you know, we were discussing it as a community, knew that it was possible and probably an eventuality, but there were some challenges that had to be overcome first. Do you think, though, that that had to happen first with the your 
results with the family of people who could spit into the tube to get that law enforcement to take it seriously? Yes. Um, I did speak in 2014 at a forensic law enforcement conference and tried to convince them that this was the way of the future. But like you said, it's hard to change. They're so immersed in their traditional forensic DNA testing and analysis using 20 STR markers, or at that time, it was even less. I think it was 13 STR markers. So the idea of moving to hundreds of thousands of SNPs was, I think, overwhelming to them, my audience at the time. But they were really interested and enthusiastic, asked a ton of questions. I showed them unknown parentage case studies um, to see, show how it worked. And so, you know, I think um, it kind of percolated for a lot of years. When I would have a media story out there, I would hear from a lot of forward-thinking law enforcement officials who would write to me and say, do you think your techniques could work on my cold case or on my unknown doe? Um, but I knew it would, but we had to find a way to get that DNA into the databases. And I knew very early on that the big companies like 23andMe and Ancestry DNA were not going to allow that to happen. So we needed a third-party database that would grow large enough that it would even be viable. And that's, that's really GEDmatch. Right. And that's what took so, so much time because GEDmatch is tiny compared to the commercial databases. There's about 30 million people who've tested it in those big databases. And GEDmatch just has uh, maybe 1.3 now, 1.3 million. But when we started, less than a million back in 2018. And that's because it was really just a niche thing. It was for it's kind of like a sandbox for advanced genetic genealogists or for people who were really invested in resolving their own family mysteries. So there's a lot of people in GEDmatch that are adopted or don't know who their father, biological father is, etc. And so because it was such a small subset of the total testers, it really wasn't viable until 2018. You know, you might have been able to occasionally solve a case for law enforcement, but pretty rarely. So that's just kind of how she went from doing her own family <clears throat> tree to convincing law enforcement this was going to solve cold cases. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like there's a lot to unpack there. The one thing that I'm hitting on like right now as I'm listening to that is that, you know, people are like, oh, my gosh, it's amazing. Mana from heaven. All of these cold cases are being solved. But really, you can hear from her. There is so much going on behind the scenes for years. For decades. For de yes. And it's her success is not something. And this is something my mom will always say to me. Like, you know, people think that all of a sudden people just become successful and like, oh, they can't. They're a success overnight. And it's like, no, you don't know. Right. All the building blocks that went into place to get that person to be where they are right now. And that's Cece. Yeah. And you can hear that in that interview that we did with her. And I think because now we also have like social media sensations overnight, something will become viral mm -hmm. that we do still have this impression that things can happen in an instant. And I think that they can. But in this particular case, it's been happening behind the scenes for so long. And people are just interested now because the results, the right. results are there. 
I mean, it's amazing how many cases that she is solving. But it's a reminder, too, that, you know, if you don't have that overnight success, if you're hoping that, you know, you'll start a podcast and two weeks later, you'll be international (laughs) stars. Like, that's not reality. But if you believe in yourself and you work hard and you Mm -hmm. keep at it. Mm -hmm. This is what we're telling ourselves. Yeah, this is our own little pep talk right now. (laughs) Yeah. But no, it's true. It's like, you know, you put in the hard work, you put in the effort, you do it because you love it and you have that grit. And that's a story that I can, you know, eat from every single day because it's so true. And Cece is like, yeah, you look at her background and it's like, there's no, you know, sci- I was kept when I first was looking at her background, I was like, okay, where's the science going to come in? Because yeah, she's an PhD actress. PhD or whatever. <laughs> and it wasn't, I, I was like, it wasn't detracting from what I thought of her work. It was just like, we expect that. And then it somehow it like cheapens the work if there's not that. But in her case, it's just a celebration of like, hey, she's really good at this. She has a process that she's mastered. And it's like she's getting the rewards for it, which is fantastic. And the other thing she talked about during our conversation was how this was not the path she expected to take in life. Mm -hmm. When she was young, she actually went to, to college for performing arts and voice. She wanted to be an actress and a singer. And, you know, that didn't pan out for her. I guess she did some acting, but, you know, never became a really big star. And so she moved on to another career and, you know, had a life uh, just kind of what we all do. Right. You just Mm -hmm. you you go through life day to day and, and see how it unfolds. And never did she expect this to be her ultimate career. But, you know, as we said, you know, she she just became really interested in learning about her family tree and it all took off from there and her hobby became her profession and now it's her expertise and she didn't even start looking at any of this till she was in her 40s. Yeah, it's a pretty incredible story and I think that one of the the key things to her though is that what I said before like she believed in herself. Like mm-hmm. so often she could have just like okay, well they're not going to believe in me because I'm not this, but she's like no, I believe in myself. And I think that's that's important and she had the time to put into. I think she said she was in a space in her life where she could afford to put the time into learning how to do it and a lot of people aren't in that place where they can't do it, but she did and you know, she's getting the fruits of it. So I I guess I feel like people probably understand the basic concept of genetic genealogy because we've been talking about it so much. I think I I was explaining it to my husband because he wasn't fully. So genetics is basically your DNA. It's looking at how your DNA is made up. Do you have blue eyes or brown eyes? Where do you come from? What's your ancestry? That sort of thing. Um, But genealogy is your family tree. Who are the individuals that you're related to and how are those individuals related to other individuals? individuals. When you combine those two things, when you're using the DNA to determine the genealogy, to find the family tree, that's when you get the genetic genealogy. And that's where the expertise of being really good, the super sleuth, to the putting in the, the hours and hours and hours that it takes. I mean, it takes so long to look through all these records. So it's you, not a matter of just like putting in a DNA into a database and the computer analyzing it for you and popping up with a green light or red light, like, yes, this is a match. Or no, it's not. It's mm-hmm. it's not that simple. Yeah, I mean, it's a roadmap. So you you put it in there and you hope with the Jed match that you're you want to get as close to the person as possible. But oftentimes, because the the pool is still so small, I think she said nine hundred thousand. Um, yeah, at the time of the Susan Galvin case, when she was looking at this, it was nine hundred thousand individuals, and they found like a 
third cousin and a fourth or fifth cousin. And but but they in addition to that got information like, well, they have to have some Native American in them. They have to have blue eyes or, you know, mm-hmm. other details about that person in their DNA. Yes. That they could then combine with the genealogy to f- make that match. Yeah. So it's a combination, equal parts, I would say, of genetics, but also the genealogy part. Have you ever done a 23andMe or Ancestry DNA? You know, it's funny because my daughter and I, when she was, she's now 20, but at the time she was like 16 when this all started, you know, coming out with like doing a DNA test. And I'm kind of more, I'm not going to say suspicious, but I feel like in the future they're going to use the DNA, you know, in healthcare, they'll sell it. You know, I kind of have that tinfoil hat on when it comes to that. And so I just was like, I just don't think you should do it. I don't want you to do it. If you, when you turn 18, if you want to do it, you can do it. But until then, you know, I put the kibosh on it. And she was really upset by that. And um, so to answer your question, no, I haven't done it. I, I wouldn't do it. And I know that's like people are who knows what they're thinking. But I just worry in the future what they'll do with it. And, the, and, and they will not tell you that they're selling your information. And so I think it's what you're looking at. I mean, how do you feel about it? I look at it the opposite way. You know, you're looking, you're forward thinking and looking Mm -hmm. at the future Mm -hmm. and I'm looking at the past. I have been told things about my genealogy that could be really interesting and I would love to find out if they're true or not. Like, for example, I've been told that I am um, a descendant of a Cherokee chief. Mm. I've been told that I'm related to Benjamin Franklin. Mm. And so why haven't you done it? I don't know. You know, it just hasn't been something that I've decided to spend my money on. But it is something that I think would be really interesting to find out. Yeah. I mean, there's just a lot of unknowns when it comes to what they're doing with this information. This is a really I love it that it's solving cold cases. I just don't trust it when like in the future. Oh, well, you can't get health care because you have a, a, you know, you have a mutation in your gene that makes you have a preponderance you know, to get some kind of horrible disease or something. So the interesting thing is that um, in the time that this that these databases have been active, the laws have already changed. Apparently, um, Cece was explaining that it used to be for law enforcement to go to the databases and get your information and like look for a match. They didn't need your permission to do that. But the rules have changed. And so now you have to opt in. It used to be you had to opt out of letting Mm -hmm. law enforcement look Mm -hmm. at your information. Now, it's changed to where you have to opt in, which means law enforcement has fewer DNA profiles to look at, but it means that your privacy is more protected. So, you know, I think that a lot of times the laws trail the reality when it comes to technology. It takes so long for them to catch up. But in this case, it seems like they're already starting to catch up. And I think that when it comes with this, when it comes to this kind of stuff, like they're already, you know, law enforcement is so far behind, you know, these companies have all this data and all this information. What are they going to do with it? Do you trust? See, here's my tinfoil hat coming back on. (laughs) But, you know, if I were to give my DNA just to, 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 if I knew for a fact that it was going to help solve a case, I would totally do it. And nowhere else. I just don't trust that piece of it. But yeah, I mean, for people who are, I mean, it's incredible. 